Okay, this is Kirk Kovac. I'm here with Cal Cunningham in Raleigh for Politics NC. Cal, thank you for coming. I appreciate it, Kirk. Thanks for having me on. So if you don't know yet, Cal is running in the Democratic primary to be lieutenant governor. So Cal, could you just you know, start us off with a brief introduction? Who are you and you know, why are you running? Sure. No, wonderful question. Uh, so I'm a native of Lexington. I grew up in Lexington. I, uh, my wife and I and our kids now live uh, here in Raleigh where we're doing this recording. I am a, a true believer in the power of public service to make the lives of our fellow citizens better. And I see problems coming at us fast and furious. Uh, you know, I'm compelled to get into this race to be part of uh, a next generation leadership in North Carolina to work with uh, Roy Cooper on some of these challenges. We can get more into those as we talk today. Uh, but I uh, have long served in many capacities. We can cover that as well. I see this as an opportunity to really dig in on some of the biggest issues of our time and work to make a difference, work to move our state forward, and uh, would like to be part of helping govern a wonderful state that is changing very fast and that I think needs uh, forward thinking and progressive leadership. Okay, and and to your point about the state changing fast, that was one of the things I wanted to touch on. I know you were in the state Senate, I think, 2001 to three, was that? That's correct. So I imagine North Carolina has gotten a lot of changes since you last served in office there. So what are the biggest hurdles we face now, you think, especially versus when you were last in office? Wonderful question. Many, many layers, I think, to uh, how I'd like to respond to that. I mean, first and foremost, growing up in a, a mill town like Lexington is, we're known for our furniture, we're known for our barbecue. And, uh, you know, I never imagined how much uh, a community could change, uh, given what I saw uh, growing up there, the furniture jobs left years ago. Most of the uh, design work has now left as well. And and literally, as we've been working to build up this campaign, they are physically taking down the buildings that defined downtown Lexington, the smokestacks, the, uh, the physical buildings, the offices that constituted the backbone of Lexington much like so many of the mill towns across North Carolina, uh, those good-paying middle-class jobs have been slammed by trade, by automation, uh, by uh, changes in consumer uh, uh, behavior, and figuring out a way to have a dynamic and durable economy uh, that allows folks who grow up in all parts of North Carolina uh, to engage in this rapidly changing economy. I mean, that's sort of at the heart, not only of why I went back home to Lexington and served in the state Senate representing my home community, but one of the things that compels me into this race now too. Headline numbers suggest that the economy is booming, and that may be true, particularly in parts of urban, uh, the fast growing uh, parts of North Carolina, but there are vast swaths of North Carolina for which folks uh, aren't connected to this new economy. Very important, one out of two, almost half of North Carolina households in the last year missed a major payment, a medical bill, a car payment, a rent payment. Uh, while the headline numbers suggest one thing, there is a lot going on uh, in this economy that folks are not plugged into 
good paying jobs. I want to be part of a solution to that. So the economic change is a first important answer to your question. There have been vast changes, I think, culturally and politically as well as the state has urbanized as rural and small town North Carolina has become redder and redder from a political standpoint and urban North Carolina has become bluer and bluer from a political standpoint. Uh, and what you've touched on there, the the split, the rural-urban divide. I know when you represented parts of, uh, what were the counties? Rowan was one of them. Rowan, Iredell, and Davidson. So I, it would be hard for me to imagine a Democrat representing those areas now. So do you see economic issues as a way to bridge that divide? Because the social issues seem to be as divisive as ever between the parties and, and the different areas of the state just feel differently about certain topics. But you know, economically, do you think that's a winning issue for a statewide candidacy versus you know, a very regional one? Here's, here's how I think about it. Uh, first of all, uh, to your point about the nature of that part of the state, much like the rural urban divide across the state. On the same night that I got, that I won that state Senate seat, Al Gore got 35% of the vote uh, in the same precincts. I got 53% of the vote. That swing represented the difference between uh, the way the electorate thought about Democrats at the time. The electorate has become far more polarized, making it even more complicated to try to bridge some of these divides. It's an important part of this campaign, who I am and what I intend to try to do, to very uh, doggedly pursue bridging those divides. And part of the way I'm doing that is by focusing on issues affecting children and issues affecting families writ large. Uh, we can get into the you know deeper about that, but I would say that the same issues affecting families in Davidson County are affecting families here in Wake County as well. Okay, well, that, that makes sense, and uh, hopefully whoever they're responding to is okay out there. Absolutely. Another uh, topic I wanted to talk about is, is specifically the primary itself, and I know uh, since you announced, um, I know um, uh, Terry has announced as well, Vin Dunn, um, it looks like it might be a crowded primary for lieutenant governor, which makes sense because you know Dan Forrest can't run again, so it's going to be open on both sides. So how do you see you distinguishing yourself and your campaign from whoever may end up running in this primary? Sure. No, it's look, it's a good question. And uh, between those who have said something publicly about campaigning and those who I hear privately talking about okay. entering the race, uh, we are going to be blessed with uh, wonderful Democrats in this primary and uh, any of whom I think uh, stand to put this office to better use than we've seen in at least in recent years. Uh, so first and foremost, I would say uh, we as Democrats need to use this as an opportunity to build the party, to engage all parts of North Carolina, to talk about the biggest issues facing our state. I intend to run a very strongly progressive campaign talking very boldly about the issues, about the challenges that we face. You can see that in the announcement video that I've put out you know, starting right off talking about the challenge of climate change, something that the last six years I've spent a lot of time working on building an environmental company. Uh, I call out uh, the challenge of intolerance. Uh, we see that locally. We see that nationally, that our public space is 
uh, deeply toxic right now. We need to find a way to engage each other, to have conversations with each other, to listen to each other in new ways. I talk uh, very frankly about uh, uh, challenges like gun violence. I've been working on that as vice chair of the governor's crime commission. We just sent recommendations to the governor uh, about particularly ways to deal with uh, the threat of gun violence in schools. So, you know, first answer to your question, I'm going to run a very strongly progressive campaign talking about the issues and the biggest challenges I see us facing. I would say second, I bring into this campaign a unique set of life experiences, and I will talk about those life experiences as a predicate to how I would govern. Uh, you know, in addition to serving in the state Senate, of course, uh, uh, enlisted or uh, took a commission in the Army Reserves after September 11th. Uh, I've served three active duty tours, including uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, in both places working on the challenge of uh, establishing the rule of law in a very, very difficult part of the world, but also taking on uh, corrupt government contractors and dealing with sexual assault, which is a very pernicious problem in society generally and in the military particularly. And so that then extends to work I've done with the Governor's Crime Commission, helping fund nonprofits that are providing services to families and uh, women who have been affected by domestic violence and sexual assault, which then also ties to work that I've done uh, in other aspects of life as well. So I'm going to talk about a unique set of life experiences, uh, being born in a trailer park while my parents were still in school in Winston and growing up in that mill town, uh, uh, talking about uh, public service and the many ways in which all folks engage in that, but uh, that I have as well. And then I'm gonna talk very strongly about the issues and about where we are at this moment in time, the things that need to be addressed, the things that I think we may be going in the wrong direction on. What do you make of the way North Carolina elects its lieutenant governor versus other states, the governor and lieutenant governor, it's like a presidential ticket, you know, president, vice president. Uh, what do you make of that in North Carolina? Do you think that's a pro or a con in so, the way? It, uh, good question. So North Carolina has, uh, I think, what we colloquially call a long ballot. We elect right. uh, a number of members of the Council of State, uh, and that fragments policymaking from an executive standpoint. And so rather than one executive, the governor, uh, speaking with a unified voice, and a legislature, we have a very fragmented policymaking uh, system. That is obviously replicated in the lieutenant governor's office. One of the questions I get frequently already on the trail is tell me a little bit more about what the lieutenant governor does. And so, you know, while we elect them separately, it is not a throwaway vote. If you go back and do your homework, uh, 48 times in the last 30 years in America, 48 times the lieutenant governor has succeeded to the office of governor because of a resignation, a death, an incapacity, or the election of the governor to another office. So first and foremost, the lieutenant governor has to be prepared to help govern this state or govern this state. Uh, the duties of the lieutenant governor are frequently uh, worked out between the governor and the lieutenant governor. That has worked better and worse through the years, regardless of the parties of the lieutenant governor. Uh, there are some things that I feel very passionately about and would like to work with either Roy Cooper, uh, preferably Roy Cooper, in a second term on. Uh, and uh, thirdly, there are 
you know, boards and commissions, the State Board of Community Colleges and the State Board of Education that the Lieutenant Governor serves on, the Military Affairs Commission and others. I had 12 years on the Community College Board in my home community in Davidson County. I've worked with the Gates Foundation on some community college issues and was on a state trustee uh, association. And the community colleges actually launched the campaign last week uh, on Wake Tech's campus in no small part because our community colleges are a key way that the economy of today and tomorrow and the people who need job skills and training and uh, better education can connect. So uh, I think it's a nice match between personal and life experiences and the opportunity to really do uh, good things for the state of North Carolina. Well, do you see the role of the lieutenant governor being possibly more important in 2020 if the, the state legislature is more evenly divided or if, you know, if it comes down to a couple votes that are very tight, doesn't the role of the lieutenant governor becomes a lot more influential than when, you know, Republicans have the supermajorities. There's not that much you can do as lieutenant governor legislatively. So, uh, yeah, wonderful point. An additional constitutional responsibility of the lieutenant governor is to preside over the Senate. And uh, and in a very closely divided Senate uh, where members are sometimes there and sometimes not and where uh, issues may not fall cleanly along partisan lines, the lieutenant governor could be the tie-breaking vote uh, over and over again and, and can also be an influential voice in helping shape debate and, of course, then has to make uh, various parliamentary decisions as presiding officer in the chamber. And all of those tools can be used to help shape policy. Uh, I think that's a, it's an important uh, uh, part of the job. Many years ago, there were additional responsibilities to help set committee chairships uh, and other leadership positions in the Senate that got stripped in a partisan fight in much the same way that in a partisan way the legislature uh, went after some of the governor's powers after Roy Cooper was elected. So I think uh, force of personality is not to be underestimated though as an important part of using the position of lieutenant governor to serve the state. We have seen uh, several examples where a, a very strong uh, personality in the office of lieutenant governor has worked to take on initiatives outside of the normal policymaking process and really do some good things. I think Beverly Perdue did a very nice job of working a portfolio that supplemented what Governor Easley was doing. Uh, Dennis Wicker, I think, uh, worked very hard both legislatively and uh, outside uh, of what, uh, what then Governor Hunt was working on. And so the relationship between lieutenant governor and governor is important. And I think that by force of personality, the lieutenant governor can work with the governor on a whole host of issues. Well, I, I do understand, given the way the we have a long ballot, that sometimes people will choose you know, a Democrat like Roy Cooper and a Republican like Dan Forrest. But I, I definitely would see the value in them being of the same party to just work things out quicker and more effectively. I wonder what your thoughts are on the new legislative session that's about to begin, given the broken supermajorities, it's going to be a lot different of a dynamic. And I know there's going to be a very big vote for the budget near the end of the year. And that should be contentious, given that the Republicans can't just push it through. So what what are you looking for in the next year? And maybe that would inform you know some of the issues that will come up in 2020. That's a great question, Kirk. So if I, uh, it's always dangerous to look into a crystal ball right, and right. try and prognosticate uh, 
I think that this is healthy for North Carolina. Uh, while I obviously uh, worked very hard to support Democrats up and down the ballot, uh, state uh, for state House, state Senate, and other uh, elections this fall, uh, recognize that Republicans still hold uh, key leadership roles in both chambers. The closer numbers give, I think, the governor an opportunity to identify a couple of really important core priorities and emphasize them and use the veto and use the closer uh, numbers to really, uh, the parties have got to work together. Uh, this is a state that is very evenly divided. The even divisions would be more fairly represented in the legislative chamber if we could get past this gerrymandering that we're laboring under. I think we need this may be a sweet spot where we can move an independent redistricting commission. I would support that uh, very strongly. The district I was representing got carved up in partisan redistricting litigation. And uh, so I've been, I have seen very close and personally what uh, it does to communities when redistricting uh, changes the landscape. Uh, there were more Democrat uh, ballots cast in 2018 than there were Republican ballots uh, in many of the in most of the races across the state so if you balance uh the districts you get even more close uh, balance in the legislature so but republicans will hold uh the gavels and i think the governor can identify core education uh priorities uh core priorities in health care uh there are uh, certainly some other things i'd like to see him uh work uh, aggressively on some environmental issues and i think the parties are going to have to then come to the table and figure out how to work together. The budget, obviously, is going to be ground zero for uh, that fight. I'm hopeful that North Carolina can find a North Carolina way forward on Medicaid uh, expansion that uh, gives uh, access and affordable uh, health care to hundreds of thousands of citizens that we're already paying for. It'd be good for jobs. It'd be good for rural hospitals. It'd be good for hospitals generally. But I think it's uh, past time that we move forward on that. And uh, the governor has a commission on education that is working up a set of recommendations to really get at some of the uh, wealth and inequality challenges that we're seeing in the schools. Uh, that commission should report later this spring. And I'm hopeful that that gives a foundation for uh, some really uh, heavy lifting that needs to take place, uh, supporting our teachers, uh, making sure our schools are working and uh, doing some things we need to do to have uh, a dynamic uh, and uh, uh, an education system for the 21st century. Okay, that's great. I think we've sketched out a good portrait of who you are and, and the reasons you're running. So I want to give you an opportunity here at the end to you know present whatever message you'd like to leave as the takeaway or, you know. What, well, wonderful question. I, uh, uh, I'm deeply energized by the opportunity to serve. I've obviously done that in a number of different ways, whether it's state senate or in the military. I've uh, been building an environmental company the last six years, uh, trying to take on challenges in climate, and of course been vice chair of the Governor's Crime Commission, among many other ways. And, and, and folks serve in so many different ways. I see the challenges coming at us hard and, and fast, and uh, would be honored to get to know uh, so many of the folks who are listening, for instance, uh, I'm campaigning, I've already done uh, just shy of 20 campaign events across North Carolina, just in the, what are we now, eight days since uh, launching the campaign. I appreciate hearing from folks and getting input. I'm looking for uh, voices. I want to listen. 
uh, before speaking. So I'd hope that folks would uh, connect with us on the website, calforensc.com. Uh, go on the Facebook site, check out the launch video. Uh, we've got an issues survey open right now. I've got hundreds of responses from really, really uh, deeply engaging responses about things that folks want their elected representatives to be working on. And I would be grateful for an opportunity not only to represent uh, and earn the nomination of the party uh, next May, uh, next March when we have our primary, but to uh, to serve in office again and work on these big challenges, work on some of the most important issues of the day. It's very, very easy right now for folks to be cynical about government and about politics. I believe in lighting a candle rather than cursing that darkness. And I invite folks to join me in that. Let's set a higher standard. Let's do more. Let's put service first. And I look forward to seeing folks as we move around North Carolina. Oh, yeah, that's great. Always good to end something with a quote from JFK. So thank you for coming. And I really enjoyed talking with you, Cal. Thank you, Kurt.